Well, good evening and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to have you with us this evening. It's good to see, uh, good to see and hear um, the people of God sing. As we sing songs like the ones that we just sang, I hope, I hope you take the time to stop and consider what we sang. Uh, that last song that we learned this evening is the gospel. It is the message of the gospel from beginning to end. It's a God who creates. It's a God who restores man who has fallen. It's a God who who breaks into the darkness of this world, pursues his people, redeems them, draws them to himself, raises from the dead, and is coming back again. So I hope you are listening to those. Tonight is the last uh, in, a, in a series that we've been doing. Uh, each week we've been talking about what are really family traits uh, for Disciples Church. I mean, this is, a new, this is a new endeavor, and as such, we want to take the time to think through and talk about the things that are important to us as a congregation to talk through the things that God has led us towards, to think about where it is that he's taken us. And so if you've been with us for the past several weeks, what you've really heard is a progression. We started with this very big idea of what it is to follow Jesus Christ. And in week two, we talked about what it is to abide in Jesus Christ, to to rest in him, to be held by him. We talked then about the idea of what it is to serve God last week. And finally this week, we're talking about what what does it mean to be a disciple who gives. Now I realize that even as I say that, there are some who probably have fear and trepidation about the next words out of my mouth, and that's understandable given, your, given maybe your church background or your past experiences, um, but if you followed the themes of this evening, what you've seen is, is really a, a running uh, lesson through the prayers, through the catechism that we said together. What we're talking about is giving. What does it mean to be a disciple who gives? We get that visceral response in us when, whenever a pastor gets up and starts to talk about giving. We get that nervousness. And if you don't get that, it's probably a good thing, but it probably also means that you haven't been around a lot of churches before. Because certainly in a room this size with as many pe- as people are, as are here this evening, uh, there are many here who immediately have negative presumptions as they even see that word give come up. And I can tell you that from my own experience, there is a real fear about addressing giving. It's really born of an insecurity in my own heart as to what the Bible has to say about these things, but really what it's born of is my own experience with hearing people talk about giving. Because, uh, again, given your own experiences and and given maybe what you've heard uh, previously, you've probably heard or been to churches where it seems like all they care about is money. Or maybe that's the accusation that you've heard from friends of yours who don't know Jesus Christ or don't have a relationship with Christ. Their whole experience of the church is, well, that's just the place where they want my money. Everything that they're doing is about getting their hand in my wallet. Right? Or maybe you've, maybe you've tuned in on television and you've heard some false teacher promise prosperity in exchange for your money. You give God this, and the promise that he gives you back is X much more than you initially gave. Which, by the way, isn't in Scripture, as we'll talk about this evening. And for others, maybe it was nothing quite that ham-handed, but, but maybe for you what it was is a church experience where it seemed as if every time the conversation of giving came up, it was just about building one individual church larger and larger and larger. And that could be for a lot of reasons. It could be for a misunderstanding of what a church is supposed to be. It, it could be out of a motivation of an individual's pride trying to build a memorial to themselves. It could, be, it could be out of their own desire for grandiosity or comfort or pride. And listen, as a church, one of the things that we're going to have to be very careful of is that mentality. That we do not become a church that is so insular in our thinking 
that we only care about what is happening here. So churches, many churches, have really swung the pendulum on the conversation of giving because they're afraid of, they're afraid of offending, they're afraid of putting people off of the church, and so they just avoid the conversation altogether. And I can tell you that from my experience, that was certainly true of me early on in ministry. Because of what I had seen in churches and because of what I knew about churches, I was scared to address the topic for fear of how people would perceive it. But the danger in avoiding something like that is that the Bible has so much to say about the posture of our heart regarding money. I mean, in the Gospels, one out of every ten verses addresses the proper use of money. One out of every ten verses. That's just in the Gospels. When you look at Scripture as a whole, what you find is that the Bible views the way you use your money as a litmus test of your understanding of the Gospel. So Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 says it this way. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he, that is the Father, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, where he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And the temptation that we have in our era, and particularly in modern evangelicalism, the temptation that we have is try to abstract the spiritual from the material. We talk about our relationship with God. We understand the the divine aspects of, of who we are. We understand that we're a soul. We understand that we have a spirit. We understand the spiritual elements of Christianity, but we are so uncomfortable with where the spiritual and the material meet. And what Jesus states unequivocally in Matthew chapter six is that the two are connected, that you cannot divorce them, that you cannot split them apart, that what you put your money towards shows and determines what you value. It shows the things that you value currently because you care about those things so much that you're putting your money towards them and also conversely, because you have put your money towards them, it is also determining the direction and the posture of your heart. It's one of the few external indicators that the Bible even speaks about that demonstrate our heart. And so the question we ought to think about is if we were to look through our bank statements What would it say about what we value? What would be those things? If we were able to look at them disconnected from our emotions, what would be the things that we would walk away saying, those are the things that I really care about? Because for many of us, in fact, for probably most of us, what we would begin to see is a dissonance between what we say we believe and what we actually believe. And that's ultimately what Christ is talking about in Matthew chapter 6 when he continues after saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. He goes on to say in verse 24 of that chapter, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so here's what we need to understand about this as we begin to explore 2 Corinthians 9 this evening. Your Christian maturity, your spiritual walk will always be stilted until you begin to see God as the reason for and the source of your life. Until you see that everything you have and everything you are flows from him, flows from what he says you are, flows from what he has made you to be, flows from the adoption that he's given you and the new life that he's brought you into, the new family that has become your identity, until you begin to understand those things, 
You'll be trying to live this double life, and what Jesus says is you can't do it. You can't serve both. So let's look, let's look at this through the lens of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 this evening, and we'll break this into two main pieces, and we're going to kind of work our way piecemeal through this passage, but the two pieces will be the basis of giving and the model for giving. I want to look at the basis for giving first, and we're going to start actually in verse 8, which says this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency, that's all sufficiency in the grace that he's already given you. It's all sufficiency in what he alone can provide. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And what he's saying is this, the reason that you as a believer, if you're here and a Christian tonight, the reason that you can live and give generously is because of the gospel that you've experienced. There is a one-to-one correlation in your understanding of what it is to be a faithful giver, to live a life that is generous by its nature, and your understanding of the gospel. The two are inextricably connected because everything that you are as a Christian, the forgiveness that you've received from Jesus Christ, the adoption that you've experienced being brought into the family of Jesus Christ, the, the new identity that you've been given as a child of Jesus Christ, you did nothing to accomplish. Nothing. I mean, think about how amazing that is, that what defines you in the eyes of the Father, what, what has become your identity, your reality, your new being before the Father has nothing to do with anything you accomplished. That Jesus did for you what you could not and would not do for yourself, and he did it for you even when you didn't want it. It's what Romans is talking about when it says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't even in a position to pursue God or chase after God or, or know about God. We weren't even in a position where outside of the grace and the faith that God gives us to believe, we weren't even in a position to be curious about who God is. Ephesians chapter 2 is going to go so far as to say that even the faith to believe in God comes from him. And here's the whole point of this. God is saying, you do not get to take any credit for who you are in my sight. I get all of it. And that's a glorious and amazing thing. Because if you get to take credit for who you are in Jesus Christ, then you get to carry the failures for who you are. But if who you are is determined by Jesus Christ and not by yourself, then you are free, as we just sang, free indeed. I mean, this is the difference between grace and religion. Because religion approaches this conversation and it, it is the thing that informs the experience that many of you have had in the church where, where you've walked away thinking all this church or all this pastor cares about is my money. I'm nothing but an identification number for how much giving I, I provide annually. Do you know where that kind of thinking and where that kind of teaching comes from? It comes from the kind of appeal from a pastor or from a church that says in order to appease God, in order to make God happy, in order to pay him back for what he's done, in order to put God in your debt and get good things from him, you need to give. See, that's the language of religion, not the language of grace. It's an attitude that says, how much do I have to give for God to be okay with me? It's the 
It's the attitude we find when we are resentfully writing a check and there is no sense of gospel transformation in our heart behind it. It is pure law carrying that Old Testament mindset into New Testament Christianity. I'm going to do these things, and perhaps by me accomplishing and doing what I'm told, God will be pleased now with who I am. And that is not the gospel of grace, because what the gospel says is that you are going to begin to live out of the generosity that you've been given. You have been given much. I mean, we could talk about this in purely spiritual terms, which is the primary way that we just discussed it, where we're talking about the idea of the way that we've been forgiven, the adoption we've experienced, the identity we've been given. But even if we were to break this down in cultural, socioeconomic terms, I mean, do you realize that by virtue of living where we live in the United States, you are among the wealthiest percentage in the world? The poorest person in this room is incredibly financially wealthy as compared to most of the rest of the world. And on top of all of that, we live in a time of unprecedented wealth. We live in a time where right now we're experiencing a rather booming economy. There is no doubt that by any, by any measure, we are people who have experienced great generosity. But for the Christian, our generosity isn't dependent on any of those external factors. Our generosity is dependent on the idea that we have been given much, that we have a God who has been generous. We, are, we have a God who has cared enough to pursue us and love us and give us what we need. Now look what verse 6 says. It says, the point then is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, before we go and begin to misapply a text like this, which is honestly probably the way that, that many have heard this taught before, this is not a one-to-one -one command and reward. This is not an assurance that if you give God X number of dollars, he will give you X number more in return. I mean, there is truth to the idea that you, can't, that you cannot outgive God. I mean, that's a true sentiment, a true statement. But unfortunately, that phraseology has been co-opted by people who would abuse this kind of scripture to line their own pockets. And so the purpose of this text is not to say that by virtue of you giving money, you will receive even more money back from God. In fact, that doesn't even line up with the illustration that he's using. The illustration that he's using is he says, imagine a farmer who goes out into his field and he begins to spread seed uh, over, uh, over the land. And as the crops begin to grow, he experiences the fruit. I mean, a one-to-one -one correlation would say that by virtue of the fact that you've given cash to God, he should give you cash back. That's a bank scheme, not a God scheme. See, the way that we experience fruit from God is in ways that we may or may not ever expect. He talks earlier about the fruit of righteousness being borne out, the idea that there is right relationships happening, people beginning to operate out of new mindsets and new thinking. So what's the point of verse 6? And I don't want to spend too much time on this. The point of verse 6, according to Paul, is be generous. Be generous with what you have. So why then do we trust God for generosity? Now look at verse 10. Why do we trust God for generosity, because he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now, what is this talking about? Because we don't live in an agrarian society. 
Okay, he's saying seed to the sower and bread for food. He's saying the very source of your provision lies outside of yourself. The very source of your provision lies with God. It is something that he grants you, that he gives you, that he provides for you. And what, what, the, what Paul is saying in this passage is he who is the source of provision also has the ability to increase your provision. So to put a fine point on it, here's what that means. If I asked you this evening, how do you pay your bills How do you acquire the money to pay to live? Your answer would probably be something along the lines of, well, I receive a wage for my work. I mean, I go to work, I put in X number of hours, or I accomplish these these sorts of projects, and in exchange, they give me money for my work. But what this passage is saying is it's diving one level deeper, and it's saying, to the extent that you are gifted in any area, where did that come from? Where did your ability to work come from? I mean, I think about this in practical sense. I I look at people who by vocation are people like engineers or artists. And I use those two because those two are the things that I am am furthest removed from in terms of skill set. Like I talk to engineers and I, I, think, I hear the way that they talk about math and numbers and all these angles and I think about their spatial reasoning, their ability to look at things a particular way and map things out in their mind and their ability then to go to a piece of paper and draw it out and plan it out and do all of those things and running math in their head. I mean, I, the, the, the very fact that I'm saying the phrase running math in their head explains how little I know about what engineers actually do, right? Because as near as I can tell, that's what they do. They're operating on a whole different level. I look at artists and I've I've seen people uh, be able to draw or paint or sculpt so beautifully. I mean, they have this idea, this picture in their mind and they're they're able to come to some sort of medium, whether it's clay or paint or whatever it is, and somehow they're able to translate what's in their brain through their hands onto paper or into clay. And I look at that and I go, how in the world do you possibly do that? Because the truth is I could spend a lifetime pursuing those things and show exactly zero promise. And my art teachers from high school can back that up. To the extent that you are gifted, where did that come from? So let me illustrate it this way. One of the things that I like to do um, with my boys is uh, every once in a while we'll go out and we'll go to the store and we'll just walk down the toy aisle and usually they're just looking. They're just window shopping. They like to look at what's there and check things out and we leave the store without purchasing anything and generally speaking, it's a good time. Every once in a while, there's a meltdown. But on occasion, I'll let them go and just say, hey, tell you what, why don't you go pick out a toy and we'll buy it and their eyes just go wide and they run down the aisles and they find a toy and they pick it out and this is the one that they want and they carry it all the way up to the front and they put it on the cash register and then I pull out my card and I pay for this out of the money that belongs to me from the job that I work in the bank account that is in my name and I run it through and it gets put in the bag and we get out to the car and I give it to them. We get home a few hours later, they're playing with it and then I ask the simple question, do you mind if I see that? And what do you think the answer is? No. No. No, it's mine. And I always think, by whose definition does this belong to you? I mean, a few hours ago it was in the store. You have exactly zero income through which to purchase this item. And you're telling me it's mine? No, you're two. You don't own things. That's not a stage of life that you're at yet. Well, why is it yours? Well, because you gave it to me, right? And yet we take the same often petulant attitude into our finances. 
we want to think about how much we're going to let God have out of our money. As if he's trying to pull off some scam or extort us. As if he needs anything from you. God is saying, no, it it all belongs to me. It's all mine anyway. To the extent that you've worked for it, I gave you the ability to work. To the extent that you have a job, I've provided that for you. To the extent that you live in a place where jobs are available and you have the physical and mental capacity to hold a job, all of it's from me. And any discussion of giving that doesn't start with the acknowledgement that everything we have comes from God will inevitably lead us to a wrong place. It will lead us to that place of religion rather than that place of the gospel of grace. Because it will cause us to view ourselves as owners rather than stewards. Because if everything you have belongs to him, if everything you have comes from him, then everything you have is to be used for his glory. And just think about that for a minute. Lest you take this as some sort of guilt trip, think about what it is to do something for God's glory. Do you realize that for the Christian, we are called that everything is to be done for his glory? The Bible specifically calls out whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, it's for God's glory. So yes, to the extent that you give to charity or you give to a church or you give to a missionary or you give to some worthy organization, yes, that money is being used for God's glory if it's given from that heart of generosity because of an understanding of the gospel. And when you meet the needs of a neighbor or somebody that you know who's going through a hard time and you provide something that they need, yes, that is ultimately going to God's glory. But do you also understand that when you open up your home and you have friends over and you have good food and good wine and good time together, do you realize that that as well is to the glory of God? That he is glorified in your enjoyment of those things. See, this is a holistic view for the Christian of how we ought to view our finances. And it's what allows Paul to say in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, the truth is, for many of us, we probably didn't understand that the context of Paul using that phrase was not that you're about to go crush it in three-on-three basketball at the Y. But rather that what he's talking about when he says that that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you is that regardless of what you have, regardless of what God has entrusted to you, regardless of the wealth that you have in your life or the lack that you have in your life, understanding that everything belongs to God already enables you to say, praise his name. When things are good and when things are bad, praise his name. When money abounds and when money's tight, praise his name. Because it's not yours to begin with. Do you begin to see how freeing this mindset is? It's an invitation to freedom. Let's look next at the model for giving. The model for giving, look at verse 7. This is where it gets really interesting. Here we go. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
So Paul's saying here, look, before I explain why we should give, let me explain why you shouldn't give or how you shouldn't give. He says, first of all, don't give reluctantly. To the extent that you are having that feeling of, man, I really do not want to sign my name to this check. I really do not want to give this money away. I really do not want to meet the need of my neighbor. I really do not want to support that loved one. I really do not want to go down and volunteer my time at this organization or do this particular thing. To the extent that you are feeling that, stop in that moment and realize the, realize the attitude from, with, from, uh, from which you are operating. Because if what we've just said to this point is true, that God cares primarily about your heart and that everything already belongs to him, then understand this, you are absolutely not impressing him by giving reluctantly. And there is no amount of money that you could give that would impress God. It is all his anyway. See, what he's after in this moment is not your check, it's not your cash, it's not your lifestyle. He's after your heart. And for some of you, you may stop in a moment and go, oh man, I'm really glad to hear that. I was afraid he was after my money. I was afraid he was after all these things. No, no, no. He's after much more than that. He wants the thing that's operating underneath all of it. He wants to flip your economic system upside down. He wants to turn your thinking inside out. He wants to change the way that you approach your life. So he says, first of all, don't give reluctantly. But secondly, he says, don't give under compulsion. And this is the usual appeal for charity that we experience, right? I mean, you turn on the TV and you see a sad picture of a puppy and you hear a Sarah McLachlan song and you pull out your wallet. It's just, you just, where do, where do I give? How do I, how do I give you cash through the television? It's, it's that disconnected moment where there are, there are triggers in your life. There are people who are so good at extracting cash from you. They're making you feel a certain way. They're making you feel guilty. They're making you feel obligated. They're making you feel bad. And we have this Pavlovian response of, I've got to make it stop. How do I make it stop? How big does the check need to be? How much cash do I need to give to get this feeling to go away? And here's what, here's what Paul is saying. That has nothing to do with the kind of giving I'm talking about. So to the extent that you have experienced that in a church, understand that there is nothing but condemnation for that kind of attitude. To the extent that your experience of faith in Christianity has been people who are trying to get your money, understand that that has nothing to do with what the gospel is actually talking about. He's saying if you are giving out of compulsion, you are by necessity giving in order to get something. Either to assuage some feeling of guilt or to earn favor in the sight of God. You're trying to make an exchange. And when you give that way, what he's saying is you are not giving. You're not giving in a generous heart. You are giving to get. So to put a fine point on it, understand this. God is not interested in you giving your money out of compulsion or guilt. And if that's your motivation, keep your money. The last thing I'd want anybody to think tonight is walking out of here is that, is that the point of this sermon was Disciples Church wants your money. So, so let, me, let me make it really, really clear. God is after your heart and he is after he is after your heart as it pertains to everything in your life, including giving. So be faithful and be generous in giving. And if for a season that means you need to give elsewhere, then give elsewhere. 
And if it means for a season you need to stop and consider your heart and, and, and consider the fact that maybe you have never even actually stopped to think about what your money is for or how you use it in light of who God is, would you take this season and do that? Read through passages like 2 Corinthians 9 and Matthew chapter 6. Study what Jesus has to say in the Gospels. Consider what Paul is saying when he's saying your motivation can't be out of some manipulation or compulsion. It can't be out of some begrudging submission to what you understand to be the will of God. You need to understand this in your heart. So then what is the right way to give? Look at verse 7 again. Give as you've decided in your heart. So we would traditionally expect any conversation on giving within the church to begin with the tithe. Okay? The tithe is this Old Testament instruction that everybody who is a follower of God is to give 10%, the first fruits. So the idea was before you give any money to the government, before you give any money to anybody else in your life, before you give any money to things that are needs in your life, you take 10% right off the top and that goes to God. And we would expect that if this was the instruction that Jesus Christ intended for the church, we would expect that that pattern uh, would be reiterated, would be renewed in the New Testament. But what's interesting is that that Old Testament pattern finds no formal reintroduction in the New Testament. And Paul, who's writing this, is somebody who considers himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I mean, this guy knew the law deeply. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the first five books of the Old Testament by heart. And yet, as he's talking about giving, he doesn't even mention the idea of tithe. So the absence of that instruction should speak to us a bit. And I want to be really clear here. The truth is that the New Testament neither dismisses nor reiterates the tithe. But what you see instead in 2 Corinthians 9 is a very different model altogether. He's saying it's not an external standard where everyone's given the same number that they're to give, but rather what he says is uh, everyone is to give in, as they've decided in their hearts. This is the gospel of grace. It's saying, no, 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 I want to emphasize the approach of the heart above a raw number. I want, to, I want to get understand what, what it is that motivates you and what it is that makes you tick as it pertains to the gospel and your money rather than just giving you a line item to your budget. What's behind the line item is the question. Because the Bible does not present a picture, by the way, that wealth is evil or that poverty is good. There are people who've made that mistake in their in their right inclination to avoid the false promises of the prosperity gospel, to avoid being lumped in with people who would abuse scripture for their own gain, they've swung the pendulum the opposite way and said, well, we should all be poor then. Do you understand the Bible never speaks to that idea either? It doesn't vilify wealth. It doesn't idolize poverty. Instead, it speaks about money in terms of righteous use and unrighteous use. So as an example, Jesus is talking uh, to an elderly widow, or, talk, or rather Jesus is talking, and he references the story of an elderly widow who gave one coin into an offering. Do you remember that story? This very poor woman, she gives one coin into the offering. And Jesus says that her use of her money was good and right and righteous because she gave in the midst of her poverty. But in the very next breath, Jesus comes back and condemns the Pharisees, even though they gave much more than that woman. They gave far more 
of their income, than that, or, or rather of, uh, in terms of raw numbers than that one woman did. In fact, the Bible says that the Pharisees were, were so intense about this idea that they would go into their spice racks and they would pull out 10% of the spices in order to give that to God. They wanted to be so above board in terms of their giving, and yet Jesus has nothing but condemnation for the Pharisees because they didn't give out of a heart of love or of joy or understanding the goodness of God. They gave out of self-righteousness. They wanted people to think highly of them. So understand what this means then. It is possible to be poor and a hoarder, just as it's possible to be rich and a hoarder. And it is possible to be poor and generous, just as it is possible to be rich and generous. And Paul's instruction to us as followers, as disciples, as people who are learning what it means to live in light of the gospel so that our lives, our words, our actions can be used to make more disciples of Christ, he is saying to us, prayerfully consider what God would have you give. And this makes all the sense in the world because our circumstances are all different from one another. I mean, there are people in this room. Siri answered, my apologies. First time for that. And this makes sense because our circumstances are, are all different from one another. I mean, for some of you, as we, as we consider that question of what does your bank statement say about your understanding of the gospel and your use of money, for some of you to give 10% would absolutely crush you financially. I mean, it would be such a burden on your life that you don't even know how you could survive. And that may say different things about you. It may say that you've gone through a different se- difficult season, that you've gone through difficult things in your life. Maybe you've had medical bills or you've been helping out family or whatever else. Or maybe you've just made really bad decisions. I mean, you've made those purchases that you shouldn't have made and you've racked up debt and you have, you're barely keeping your head above water. The truth is, uh, there, and likewise, the truth is there are some here right now where giving 10% wouldn't even touch their lifestyle, wouldn't even affect the way that they think. And, act, and in fact, some would make the argument that to give 10% would barely be any sort of a stretch or demonstration of faith at all. So depending on where you are, maybe the conversation for you right now is, We've got to get our financial house in order. We've got to stop living the way that we've been living. We've got to live within our means. We've got to make better decisions. And we've got to be faithful with the little bit we have left. And for others who could, who could give far more than 10% and not even feel it, the question becomes, what is it that motivates your giving? What is it that makes you a cheerful giver? A cheerful giver. What, what odd language It's even more odd when you look at that word in the Greek because the word it comes from is hilarion. It's literally the same root word where we get our word, hilarious. To be a hilarious giver. That is weird language. It's just strange on the face of it. But the idea behind it is that you are so motivated in your generosity. You are so motivated in the joy of your experience of Jesus Christ that even in your giving, you are cheerful. So if you're giving out of that joy, the amount that you're giving takes care of itself. Do you understand that? Because if you're giving out of joy, if you're giving out of an understanding of the generosity that's been shown you, you will always be be looking for more opportunities to share that joy and to share that generosity. So what's the result? Look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way 
which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, the particular context that Paul is talking about here is, is the Corinthian church giving money to support another poorer church. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians 8 and the first few verses of chapter 9, which we didn't read this evening. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, to the extent that God has blessed you, to the extent that he has given you money to give to other people, to the extent that he has given you means in your life, it is not meant to terminate with you. It is meant to lead you to generosity, which leads to much being made of God. And it leads him to his final thought, which is this. Generosity born of the gospel has an eternal impact. Look at verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of <clears throat> excuse me, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession to the gospel of Christ. There it is, generosity born of the gospel and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Here's what he's saying. In your giving, there is something spiritual happening. This is not just an exchange of funds from one entity to another. Gifts of generosity, according to Christ, are different than how the world considers acts of charity because they have internal, eternal impacts. See, the church has always understood this, and it's the thing that has set the Christian church apart from every other faith and every other religion uh, in the history of the world. It's the primary reason that Christianity has and continues to grow and expand around the world. Because for millennia, Christians have been living out of this radical ethos, that their money does not belong to themselves and that God has far greater intentions for our use of it. And it's what leads Christians to do things like start hospitals and, and clinics and kitchens and counseling centers and missions all around the world. And it was as, as transformative in the early church as it can be today. There's a letter called the Epistle to Dionysus. Dionetus was a non-Christian. He was an atheist who was trying to understand this new burgeoning Christian church. This is in the third century, this man who knew nothing of God, who knew nothing of Jesus Christ. And a, and a pa Christian pastor wrote a letter to Dionetus which says this. He says, let me tell you by the way, I'm quoting from another pastor. It's actually a paraphrase of the original letter, but here's what it says. Let me tell you why Christianity is spreading so fast. Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They live in their own native lands, but they live as aliens. For every foreign country to them is as their native land, and every native land is as their foreign country. They marry and they have children, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They share their table with everyone, but they don't share their bed with everyone. They love everyone, but they are persecuted by all. They are poor and they make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of everything. They are treated outrageously, but behave respectfully. They are mocked and blessed in return. When they do good, they are attacked. When they are attacked, they rejoice as if being given new life. The third century. 
think about the far-reaching effects of this. Think about the way that he defines them. He says they live in their own native lands, uh, but, but they live as aliens. For every foreign country is to them as their native land, and every native land is as their foreign country. And here's what he's saying. He's saying these Christians are bizarre because it doesn't matter where they are. It's like they're home. They don't treat the people differently based on, on race or skin color or ethnicity. They don't, they don't hate people that don't look like them. They don't hate people that are different. They're able to love these people as if they are their own countrymen. He says they marry and have children, but they do not kill unwanted babies. In the third century, it was a very common practice when you had a child, but you didn't want to keep him to take your child out to the woods, to put your child on a log and literally leave that child to be eaten by wolves. Christians at this time would then go to the outskirts of town where where they knew that these babies had been left, they would take these babies into their own homes, they would adopt them and raise them as their own children. They share their table with everyone. They're hospitable, they open their homes, but they don't share their bed with everyone. An entirely different sexual ethos. Any thoughts that says, I'm going to open my home. I'm not going to live this privatized life where I'm off by myself. I'm going to welcome in everybody. But when it comes to my, when it comes to my sexuality, it's something created by God, designed by God, protected by God. They are poor and make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of everything. What is he even talking about here? He's saying these people are so incredibly generous. They're so quick to give away their wealth. And yet at the same time, they've changed their attitudes so that they enjoy these simple lives that they lead. They were short of things in their life, but they were so generous that they were happy with what they had. What's the response to the generosity of Christians? Verse 15. Thanks be to God for what? His inexpressible gift. The generosity in this case of one group of Christians to a church in an adjoining city is thanks be to God for his gift. It created thankfulness. If you've ever been around poverty, people who have nothing, there's a common mindset and attitude that kicks in very quickly, which is hopelessness. Because when you have nothing, you have no means by which to get out of having nothing. And what sets these Christians apart, and what sets the Christians apart in 2 Corinthians, is that yes, their generosity was to meet the needs of other people, but it was also to declare the gospel that they believed. And what it does in the process is set you free from the prison of societal expectations, where your worth and your impact and your meaning are no longer defined by the place you live or the car that you drive, by the school your kids attend, by how much you make, or what you wear. And where simultaneously you are free 
to enjoy the good gifts of God. To enjoy the good gifts of God while living an open-handed life. To receive with thankfulness the generosity that, give, that God gives and extend that same generosity to others. Our heart is that as Disciples Church, we would be a people who are known for our generosity. That like those third century Christians, we would be ones who, who desire to share what we have with everyone else. To meet the needs that are around us, to embrace those who are strange to us. To demonstrate and declare the love and the grace and the mercy of our God. So our heart is that as God is generous to this church, that we would be generous as well. To be generous in giving to support local and foreign missions, to be generous to support church plants and other worthy organizations in our area, to as we have opportunity meet the needs of people from within our congregation and people that we know are hurting and struggling and that our generosity would be motivated by the tremendous generosity that's been shown to us. Father, we know that every good and perfect gift comes from you. So we thank you for your extravagance. It was out of your goodness that you created us. It's your generosity that sustains us. It's your patience that carries us. And it's your love that redeems us. So we pray that you'd remind us that everything we have is yours already. Cause us to be faithful stewards of the blessings you've entrusted to us. Give us hearts to love and serve you. God, enable us to show our gratitude for your goodness and mercy by being cheerfully generous with all that we are and all that we have. God, I pray that we would do this through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our provider.